This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration is celebrating the success of a five-year-old pilot to use data to get better prices for federal buyers. While initial data demonstrates the value of transactional data reporting, Industry experts say there are a host of issues GSA still has to resolve. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about what comes next for GSA's transactional data reporting effort. And Jason joins me now with the latest. And just go through TDR and what's been going on for five years of this pilot, Jason. It's been a long pilot for sure, Tom. Now, one of the things that we have to remember about transactional data reporting was an idea that GSA came up with in 2015-2016 timeframe. And this idea was, let's get rid of something called the price reduction clause. And this is specifically for the schedule contractors, but this is also specifically around, okay, if I'm giving the government under law, under policy, under regulation, I'm, you know, industry is supposed to give the government their lowest price possible. And what we've seen over the years is the, the price reduction clause, as companies become more global, it's harder to ensure, to guarantee that. So you have a lot of False Claims Act lawsuits, you have a lot of key TAM lawsuits, where people are saying, well, I have evidence that company X didn't give you the lowest price, and now the company's got to settle and there's money being changed hands. And if you take a step back from that, while the, the industry should be giving the government their best price, if you talk about a global company, that's not always easy and it's not always relative. Like, is the government the biggest customer? Maybe not. So do they deserve the best price? Maybe not. So TDR was all about trying to be more effective, less burdensome, and, and not have to deal with these pricing disclosure requirements. And what results have they gotten so far? They must have a pretty good base of data after five years of testing this. Well, GSA issued a blog. Jeff Kosis, the senior procurement executive at GSA, went through 2018, 2019, 2020 results. And it was really helpful to see kind of how the, the pilot has really progressed. You know, initially in 2018, there was uh, not enough data. The burden was definitely lowered, but the data was not clean. And the, there's no buying strategies that resulted in that. By 2019, the data got better. There's more completeness. There's more understanding of small business performance. But still, the data is not being used. And there's still some policy gaps around data that, that they had to deal with. By 2020, they felt like the data was more complete. And they looked at evaluation criteria of nine areas. And they thought the small business metrics also were helpful. So those nine areas they looked at was contract level pricing, data completeness, data usage by category managers, data usage by contracting officers, data usage by order level buyers. So they go through a whole bunch. The reporting burden is another one. And they feel like that they're showing that the data is now 98% complete. The use of transactional data is improving, but there's more opportunities there. They, they believe that TDR generates better sales growth for small businesses. So there's a lot of good things that are coming from this. But the overall feeling, Tom, is that TDR can replace and should replace both commercial sales practices and price reduction clause, which we've written about for years now that the industry just hates. Industry, have they glommed on to the results of what's going on here? And have they weighed in on the TDR program itself? What I've been told, and, and this goes back for years, is a lot of skepticism around TDR. But even some like Larry Allen, who, you know, president of Allen Federal Business, a, a regular guest on your show. And he wrote a column about in, in 2019, 2018 timeframe that said, run, don't walk from transactional data reporting role. And even he's come around to say, hey, this TDR thing is now viable. And he says that this, this could be very good for agencies. However, other experts I've talked to said, well, it may be good on paper, 
but in reality, nobody is using it. I talked to one expert who requested anonymity because they still do business with GSA. They don't want to be seen as openly criticizing this big pilot program, but they said basically agencies and contracting officers are not using the data. And when you look at pre-award audits and, and things of that nature, they're still being used. Negotiations are still being done based on you know, price reduction clause, commercial sales procedures. So while GSA is, is celebrating this data, the question is how much it's being used and is unclear by GSA's blog or from these industry experts that's even being used at all. I did also hear from um, others who said, you know, the other thing with TDR is industry has invested a lot of money in it. And a lot of contractors under the schedule programs, more than 50% there, I'm told, actually are using TDR, or part of the TDR pilot. So to to actually get a really sense of the impact and pre-award audits, it's harder and harder to do because so many people are not doing the, the old price reduction clause and are doing TDR. So the fact is that the, it's, it's less clear about the impact it's having if, again, contracting officers are not using the data. And then finally, Tom, the one other thing that was brought up to me that I think is really interesting that's going to actually complicate a lot of this is GSA's move towards unpriced contracts. This is under Section 876 of the 2018 Defense Authorization Act. What GSA is doing is pushing the competition down to the task order level where price is important but not as important and lowest price matters based on terms, conditions, what you're buying, how much you're buying. There's so many other factors that play into pricing than just is it the lowest price. So while TDR, I think, was here to stay, it's definitely not a done deal in the fact of the value and whether or not it's going to how, how it's going to look in, in the next three to five years from now. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And you also wrote about the Technology Modernization Fund, and that has been in the news a lot. In fact, you broke the story of how much the payback parameters might be changing from the council that controls the TMF. Now you've got new details from the new federal CIO. Tell us what she told you. I had an email exchange with the federal CIO, Claire Martirana, and she actually gave me some interesting details about what, how she views this new TMF guidance, the, the TMF board's plans, and why agencies should apply for additional money. You can read that full transcript of, of our short interview online at federalnewsnetwork.com. But, Tom, one thing that really stood out to me is when we talk about this payment flexibility and what makes sense for agencies, she actually said that it's going to determine level of, level of repayment will be will be based on each project, based on the agency's financial posture, based on their risk management strategy, and then uh, as well the board will look at whether or not which which factors play into project prioritization and how much flexibility come come into play with each project. So remember, they're looking at four areas for the project: cybersecurity is a big one, digital services for the public. Uh, shared services, and obviously uh, uh, legacy IT in, in the sense of, of getting mission-critical, high-value programs uh, modernized. The other thing she said, and I'll just offer, is you know when it comes to getting these programs out, and they have a billion dollars, so that's a lot of money they got to get out the door over the next uh, you know year or so. Sure she, is. She mentioned that, that they are going to ensure that the board, the TMF board, and the program management office for the TMF have the resources necessary to ensure that that gets out. And that's one of the common things I heard from industry. I talked to Gordon Bitko, the former FBI CIO. He's now the senior vice president for policy at the IT Industry Council. I talked to Mike Hettinger, a former Hill staffer. They all said the same thing. Does the project management office have enough uh, resources, enough people to get through the numbers of proposals that it's expected. And even Gordon Bicko offered this, how will the board also take industry perspective? Meaning not that, hey, I'm going to bid on this, but 
what makes sense? How does it work? Do these projects work in terms of taking on the most modernized technology, the most modernized approaches? So there's a lot there, but it's good to hear Claire Monterano talk a little bit about what her th- ideas are, because this was her first major if you will, sure. policy announcement. I guess she and everyone else is hoping simply that agencies only don't do projects because they are in the category of no payback. That should not be the criteria for modernizing. Right. I think I think there's a lot there that she's she's looking at, but it's got to come from, I think, cybersecurity with the most recent hacks of SolarWinds and others are really front and center for a lot of agencies, but there's a lot of other pieces and parts that have to, to get taken care of that will address cybersecurity concerns, but also serve the public better. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. 
literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.